All right. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. Thank you, Grizz. Thanks for that beautiful uh, intro there, uh, the Good Times Roll by Grizz. Shout out. He's been our pod sponsor for more than a year now. Uh, oh, yeah. You're listening to Andreas Georges. I'm your host. This is the Red Bulletin Podcast, as previously mentioned. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of culture, adventure, sports, music. We got a really great guest today. Uh, probably one of the more enjoyable conversations I've had, and I've had a lot of them in the uh, months that we've released this podcast. Her name is Rebecca Rush. She is a premier athlete, an endurance athlete, who's basically won at everything she's tackled from uh, you know high school track star to whitewater rafting, even though she had an abject fear of the water, to adventure racing, which was a thing in the late 90s and early 2000s, to her recent incarnation as a top endurance mountain bike rider. Uh, if you don't know what the Leadville Trail 100 is, she's won it four times in a row. And I highly suggest you listen to last week's podcast where we dive into the history of that really, really unique race. Um, we talked to her about overcoming the pain threshold, what awaits on the other side. We talked to her about those hallucinations that she gets uh, when she's pushing at her very limits, including a fruit stand that she saw uh, in the peaks above New Zealand during a race. Uh, we talked to her about the emotion of the moment and using it to fuel her success as well as her upcoming film, uh, which is out on Red Bull TV called uh, Blood Road, where she makes a very personal journey down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to visit the site where her father, a Vietnam War pilot, crashed uh, in the late 60s. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting um, discussion on pain, overcoming pain. It's an interesting discussion on the journey of an athlete realizing that um, limits are something to be pushed through. Hope you enjoy. Queen of Pain. Do you <laughs> like that title? Uh, well, I don't dislike it. And it's, uh, you know, like nicknames, you don't give yourself your nickname. So I didn't coin myself the Queen of Pain. It just <laughs> was given to me along the way. I, I feel like uh, it's a little misleading for some people because they think that, you know, I just enjoy pain. Um, pain is definitely a part of my sport and ultra endurance sports. And I, I think it's more that I do feel that pain equals payoff and that the times where you really are suffering, you know, on the other side of it is a reward. And so it's somewhat accurate, but you know, then when people meet me, they're like, Oh, well, you're so nice. You know, I thought you'd just be like hard. Ass. Yeah. Kind of this hard ass and just like, uh, you know, tattooed or just like really is there, gnarly. Is there and, payoff by the way? Is there always payoff at the end of a pain threshold? Yeah. There's always payoff. If and, you, what, and what is that payoff? Is it, is it winning the race or is it knowing that you got to the other side of that threshold? That's it's a really big question because people will always ask me, you know, why ultra endurance sports? And you know, I've done a lot of a lot of sports, but they've all focused around going long and going further, and that seems to be my physiology is suited towards that, but but mentally, emotionally my my brain is suited for that and yeah, there is always payoff and sometimes it's a race. Uh win, you know, your hands in the air and it's a world championship and then sometimes it's you know, this mind explosion of ideas where it's it's almost like a vision quest where huh. <clears throat> if you take away, deprivation actually provides, I think, provides reward. And so you strip away, you know, food <laughs> and shelter and um, knowing where you're going and all of this sort of comforts that we have in our everyday life and it is it is mind expanding and right. i you know i do think it's kind of like a vision quest and there's this process in really ultra long events you know and everybody experiences i experienced this morning going running in santa monica the first 20 minutes you know or 10 minutes of any run or any workout or anything physical you're like oh yeah i'm right. stiff and sore and this is terrible i never want to do this again why do i do this and then slowly you warm up and physically then you start to enjoy it and then in really long events then the pain comes and 
then after that, you know, the deprivation comes and then hallucinations sometimes come. Right. Good and, ones or, or kind you know, of weird ones. They're they're all different. You know, I've seen people, I've seen sort of dead I've seen dead people out on the trail. I've seen a um a fruit stand, you know, with a woman selling, you know, bananas and hmm. kiwis and, you know, out in the middle of the mountains of New Zealand. It's and, like how did she even get all that fruit out there? Well, and I just went to my teammates. That was a really interesting hallucination. I just you know, as normal as could be, we're on top of a glacier and there's a woman selling tropical fruits. Right. And I just said, Hey, who has any money? I don't have any money. I really want to go buy a smoothie. And they're just like, Oh no, we, they knew that I, they didn't. And they're just like, yeah, we don't have any money. And I was just like, Oh, bummer. And just walked <laughs> on. And it was as real as it could be. Um, and then other times it's sort of all these great ideas and this creativity flow that starts to happen and then the last step is is your body really is shutting down where, um, you know, races I've been in where you've got all your clothes on, down jackets, everything, and you're shivering and you can't stay warm and you're throwing up your food and, and your body is revolting what you've asked it to do. And yeah. that all sounds really terrible. But yeah, at the end of that, I look back and I'm like, well, I survived. And the the skills and what you have to call on personally to get through that and it is like a vision quest it's nothing new it's you know the native americans have done it buddhists do it you look at you know the deprivation that that zen monks got you know they don't eat a lot they sit they meditate they do hard work and my sport is a little bit like that and there's there is this religious experience in a way for me and and so long-winded answer to your question yeah there's always reward there's always personal growth and there's not always a win it's different than that sometimes but there's uh, always the way, a reward long-winded is what we're all about so that's okay. great <laughs> <laughs> uh tell me about uh i mean actually you don't what's interesting is you probably worked <clears throat> up to this point right i can't imagine that when you were seven eight nine ten years old you were just you understood how that the, the pain was something that you could make a companion or pain was something, you know, you yeah. could, you could kind of, you know, push through and find to the other side. No, I'm just, I'm just starting to figure all this out now and looking back at the arc of my career and looking back at, you know, when people do ask why it's like, Oh, maybe I should try to figure out why. And so I, I have been kind of looking at the, the through line and the thread that that's gone through all that. And, it is, you know, I used to camp in my backyard as a kid. You know, I think everybody this is did in that. Suburban Chicago, in suburban right? Chicago. You know, I'd be like, Mom, I want to camp out this weekend. And she's like, oh, it's going to be cold or this or that. And, you know, we lived in suburbia on a little brick road. And I would camp out and, you know, stay out there by myself and kind of get scared and nervous. And then come in the morning all excited that, you know, that I was all brave and stayed outside. And, you know, so that sense of adventure and curiosity and wanting to explore, that's always been there. And then even the first organized sports I got into, which was running. Um, because of a tracksuit? Yeah, because I, well, I didn't want to be fat as right. a young girl. You know, that's a, a lot of the stresses of being a kid. You know, you don't want to be fat. And there was a sweet tracksuit that my neighbor had. That like, hits even that young? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. At that age, you know, you're you're starting, and I don't know if you have kids or work with young girls, but it's sports are so important at that age, and I'm so thankful that I found running. Uh, you know, I wanted the tracksuit, but what I found instead was, you know, confidence in my body and a friend, a group, a tribe of people to right. hang out with, and you know, a work ethic and all these great things. And yeah, it starts super young, and probably even younger for for girls now, and, and probably boys too. But I can relate to that. You know, the body image that everything we see is, you know, you got to be perfect, you got to be strong, you got to be amazing. And was that something you could talk to your mom about, or? I mean, you know, that... my family wasn't athletic and, you know, my mom was at work all the time and my sister and I were two, you know, kind of, you know, she's a single, pa single parent and my sister and I were fending for ourselves a lot. You know, if we locked ourselves out of the house or lost our keys or we're climbing in the windows and we really were just kind of uh, figuring out on our own. And no, I didn't, you know, when you're that age, you're, you know, preteen, you're not going to open up and really talk to your parents about the things you're the deeper feelings you can't even put words to them at that right. point right. you're just like i i want to go to school and i want to you know i didn't want to be a cheerleader but you definitely want to like you, you're you're worried about body image at that point which is 
amazing it starts that young. That's crazy to me. It's crazy. And I mean, I'm kind of glad that, I mean, you know, I had that sort of sense of insecurity because I did find sports and it's been a, it's changed the trajectory of my life. And, but, you know, even when I started running, um, running around the track, running around circles, this predictable, you know, measured distance was like living hell to me, but put me on a cross country course and where every, every course was different and through the woods and the trails and jumping over logs. And I was, you know, totally stoked then. Yeah. Yeah. It's an adventure basically. Yeah. It was like this little mini two mile adventure that all these things seemed to happen in the races were two miles and that was really long. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) And you, you did very well, we should say, right. You were, you were a state champion and yeah. Yeah. Um, how quickly was that progression? Was it because you were just throwing yourself into it or was it you know, was it, uh, did it, do you find like that kind of skill came naturally? I wouldn't say the skill came naturally. I mean, everybody knows how to run. You just put one foot in front of the other. It was more an outlet for, um, an outlet for, for me to kind of develop confidence. I mean, I've always, and I'll say it now still too, I have a lack of confidence and that might seem really amazing. I mean, Will Gadd, if you've heard him speak, he talks the about... The ice climber, yeah. Yeah, he, he's a Red Bull athlete and amazing guy. He talks about the the power of negative thinking and, you know, I pretty much thought I sucked at that age and I pretty much, you know, I don't think I suck now, but I, like all through my career um, and I think you'll find a lot of really high achieving athletes think they're not good enough and they're always doing a little more, a little more, a little more. And definitely at that age, I didn't think I was good enough. And so I tried really hard in cross country running and started winning races, started doing well and chasing my friends and, you know, and yeah, but that's that's a narrow line to walk, right? For someone who doesn't have a lot of self confidence mm-hmm. to to put that amount of pressure on yourself at at such a young age. I mean, yeah. how did you manage to navigate that? I I remember my coach, who was also my math teacher. He would talk about um, he would talk about how hard I was on myself, and you right. know, even as a you know preteen kid, and I'd be sitting in math class on Thursday, and he's like, "What's wrong? What you know? What's?" I'm like, "Well, tomorrow's Friday, and then Saturday is the meet, and right. you know, I'm super stressed about it." And I was putting this kind of pressure on myself at that age, which is pretty intense and probably not really healthy, um, but it did allow me to achieve a lot in the sport, and with wins comes confidence. And with confidence, you know, yeah. comes a lot of other really great payoffs. So maybe it wasn't the healthiest trajectory or the right path, but it, it's what worked for me. Right, right. Yeah. No, no, that's, and, and it's, you know, that you, that's interesting that you found that reward cycle early on really worked for you, mm-hmm. right? Like trophies are cool, right? Mm-hmm. Medals are cool. That yeah. kind of a thing pushes you forward and motivates you. Well, and we are, we have a measured society. And so you look at, okay, if I win, I get a trophy, therefore I'm good. Yeah. And therefore yeah. I'm okay. And, yeah. you know, at that age in high school, it's like, okay, I, I'm doing all right. Like I have something to show for it. And now, you know, looking back so many years later, yeah, I, I love the trophies. I love the wins. They're awesome. It's addictive. It's, you know, that feeling that you want to get, that moment you cross the finish line. But I'm also, I can recognize now that there are rewards in rides or things I've done that that there is no trophy. There is no finish line. There is no anything. And some of those rewards are are even bigger than a trophy that I'm going to hang on a shelf. Yeah. It's a different type of trophy. Yeah, of course. Of course. And how As about a kid, your kid, mo- you don't know that though. No, you don't. Yeah. And, and, and actually a, a lot of times you're, you're looking for gratification and you're looking for, um, um, you know, support from your parents, right? It's, it's also doing it for them mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Right. Uh, how encouraging was your mother? No, oh, she was, she was awesome. She went, I mean, and she worked, Huge, you know, huge hours, single mom, commuted to Chicago. What was her job? Um, she was in computer programming and then worked her way up through computer consulting. Which was like a thing back then that nobody was, really understood, totally. right? Totally. There were the cards in the whole room where the computers like, yeah, I mean. Computer was a room. It, yeah, it was It was that room. era. And <laughs> learning to program computers. And so she was a kind of in a cutting edge industry, which was really amazing. 
Um, and as a woman in that as, as well, female, yeah, that was pretty absolutely. early on, I would say. Yeah. yeah, she's definitely a trendsetter in her field. And I didn't know at the time. I just knew mom was going to work. But she made every track meet. She made every cross-country meet. And she'd make me sandwiches and bring them out there and, like, wear her purple Trojan jacket, which cool. was our mascot. And, um, you know, yeah, she was totally there for us. It was pretty great. How present was your father? Because your father was, you know, uh, the the story that we're going to eventually get to. Your father was shot down as a uh, pilot in the Vietnam War when you were three. Um, yeah. How present uh, was there a presence or a sense of him growing up? Not for me. I mean, it was almost the, not a taboo subject, but it was. I was so young that I have no personal memories of him my sister is a little older and she remembers him she remembers playing with him and things like that but for me it was this sort of you know person in photos and like a two-dimensional it it wasn't a person it was just an idea of of somebody who I never knew and so for me most of my life you know until recently he really wasn't present it wasn't something I thought about and people would you know, say, oh, you know, how sad you're growing up without a dad. And I was just like, well, I don't, you don't I know what that means. Feel, yeah. yeah. It, I didn't feel remorse because I didn't know what I was missing. I think it was a little harder for my sister because she had memories of it and, you know, knew what she was missing. But for me, this was my normal life. And we had mom and my sister and me, and that's just what we did. Yeah. And so I didn't think about him for a long time, you know, not until well into my into my 30s, really. I mean, I think about it. My grandparents would show me pictures. My mom would tell stories, but not not a lot. It right. Wasn't, it really wasn't talked about. And I mean. It wasn't like it was a motivating force for you. Or no, not. Mm-hmm. not at all. It's, yeah. it's become Probably because so, your mom covered the bases so She did well, a great job. Right? I, you know, I didn't feel like we were missing anything. We had a great childhood. We had, you know, I got into sports, you know, went to college. Like we had a, a, a good, I mean, we had a good childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And sports was something that after college, you're like, I got to figure out a way of keeping this going or or was it, uh oh, it's time to find a real job. <laughs> I mean, you got a degree in marketing, which still really I, sets you up for yeah, everything. Yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> so, that was the thing. I couldn't yeah. decide. And so, you know, I had really good grades. I got a scholarship and my um, and this is something, you know, thanks to my dad, I did get a scholarship uh, through a military fund, you know, so I got to go to school for free, which was amazing. Um, so that was, that was a big bonus. Uh, but yeah, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. My sister has always known she wanted to go into medicine. She knew it since she was really young and she's done that. And I'm just like, I don't know, but I had good grades. And so my counselor said, you know what, go into business and Mark, you know, you can go into business cause you can, you can use that for anything, but I hated math. I wasn't that good at math. I'm like, yeah. Mar- I'll do marketing. I didn't really know what it was, but yeah. I mean, I have used it my whole career. It's been great. Um, and it set me up and I ran, uh, cross country and track in college um for the first year because that's what I knew that was my tribe those are my people like where sure. running you like that don't everything. you like that togetherness the camaraderie that's I needed brings. it you ah. know I, I needed to the competitiveness and the personal you know you know attaboy sort of things but I also needed a group of friends I mean we all need that we all want people to hang out with who are sort of like souls um but I didn't find that in college I found this really cutthroat competitive like everybody's you know college sports University of Illinois we're a big 10 school and everyone is vying for that spot and it was more like instead of the girls on the team being a team you know they're elbowing you out of the way for position and it it wasn't a supportive atmosphere for me and the the male coach was you know would make us keep food diaries and would sort of take this big yellow highlighter every monday and see what we ate over the weekend and and actually called the team fat and said you know like i can't believe you guys will never be fast you know and and it was pretty it was awful i mean especially (laughs) someone like you started thinking about weight issues totally you know and i wasn't i was a skinny kid you know i was scrawny i wasn't I wasn't overweight at all, but yeah, all of a sudden then you're in college and, and what was a supportive atmosphere for me, what gave me confidence in high school, which was running and, and, you know, winning races and being in a group that told you, you were, you were worthy. Now that turned on me and I was in the same sport was now telling me I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'll never be fast. And so I quit the team and was just like, I, this isn't 
this is tearing me down instead of building me up. Um, and I, I got, I <laughs> actually, um, joined a gym off campus was like, screw this, you know, and started doing a bunch of aerobics classes and teaching aerobics, which is really hilarious. Oh, but I found another, spandex? yeah. Oh, totally. The leg warmers, the whole deal. Neon. Uh, yeah, it was that era. Like it green was pretty or awesome. More pink? A little more pink and you know, huh. yeah. You don't but, seem like pink to me. No, I'm not really pink. You but, seem like kind of a like neon blue, neon green kind yeah. of a vibe. I think now if I taught aerobics, I would, yeah, I would do that. Okay. But, um, but yeah, so I taught <laughs> aerobics. So it what, was so weird. What and, is but that, I like found, late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, I was 80s. and uh, so, Yeah, early 90s, 80s, 90s. Um, so yeah, I found this, you know, group of older people who were working out and they were, it was another little fitness tribe, which was weird. But yeah, so I started lifting a bunch of weights, doing aerobics. And uh, then the owner of the gym is like, you should get a bike. And that's the first, other than being a kid, that's the first bike I got. And so I didn't know anything about it. I got a road bike and I just started riding around the cornfields in Illinois, like way out away from campus. And when you're at campus, like that's your little that's your little pod, you know, you don't go off campus. So I was like going long distances off campus, not knowing, not knowing how to change a tire, not knowing what the hell I was doing. Um, but I just was out there alone. And I think that was my first sports experience that wasn't group oriented that, that where I started to feel like I was in this little like bubble of my own, this little Zen state. And that was, that was pretty great for me to find an outlet that didn't involve somebody telling me I was a piece of shit, you know, <laughs> which it's yeah. amazing how important that is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes to hear that. <laughs> so, uh, did uh, aerobics, I mean, we're, we're not, we're not interviewing. You want the playlist, we're, don't Well, you? we're not interviewing you now as the, I do actually, I really want the playlist. Uh, maybe I can be a uh, podcast extra, but um, uh, we're not interviewing now as the queen of aerobics. Uh, we're in, interviewing you now as, as an endurance athlete. And, and what I find really interesting about your, your trajectory is that, you know, after aerobics came climbing and after climbing came whitewater rafting even though you're deathly afraid of the water <laughs> and after you know you you te you you really get sucked into sport mm -hmm. and why is that especially such a wide variety of them it's the only thing i've found where i i have to measure up i have you have to get down the river you 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 know climbing you either fall or you go up and it's the one place where I found that I need to push myself and I need to be a better version of me. And like I said a little earlier, I'm not, I'm not overly abundant in confidence and sports are the way for me to develop that and to, to, to feel good about myself and to feel proud of an achievement. There's so many things rolled into a sport and it, it almost doesn't matter if it's, I mean, obviously, I gravitate to certain ones, but it, it doesn't matter if it's rock climbing or kayaking or in it. And, and mountain biking is another one where was my worst cycling was my worst event in adventure racing. And somehow I seem to tackle the things I'm worst at, <laughs> like yeah. whitewater, being afraid, definitely afraid of the water as a child. Um, I have a fear of falling. You know, I can't bungee jump because I can't jump off that. But climbing, you know you know, I was really afraid of it, but I felt like those are the ones I have to, I have to try to do. But how do you approach it then? Is it, is it very calculated? You must, you must yeah. look at it incredibly pragmatically, right? Because I do, you have and that's, to get yeah. over that initial mental leap that well, you can't Well, and that's why I can't bungee jump. I can't do things like that where you, it's not calculated risk. It's not thought, I mean, it's, it needs to be cerebral for me and me to figure out, okay, I can train this way and I have this piece of equipment and I have these people with me and I have this map. I have to be able to do that to uh, control the controllables so that I have the confidence to actually try something, but I won't leap without looking. Right. I can't. I'm too afraid. So no base jumping. No, I could never do it. I actually tried to bungee jump. I walked out on a platform. All my friends were doing it yeah. in New Zealand. This old lady was doing it. Like everybody yeah. was doing it. And yeah, my seventy-eight-year-old mom just did I it know. actually in New Zealand. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not crazy. saying that you're not as cool as my seventy-eight-year-old mom. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure just, she's I'm awesome. just raising it as like you know, this is something that people feel free to uh, do without really thinking 
second or third thoughts about it. You know, it's it's. I'm sure there's a process when you're there, going like, should I do it or should I not? But it's enormous the amount of risk that you undertake mm-hmm. just jumping off with a rope tied to your feet. That you're not. You don't know the guys who tied yeah. it. You don't know the structure. You don't know the history of this place. You know, you're just trusting. You know, it's, yeah. And I think that is. I'm distrustful, and I I trust myself and what I can control. And I step back off the platform. I couldn't do it, and I was crying and thinking, God, man, what is wrong with me? But yeah. I couldn't do it, and I've never gone back. So, or, you know, skydiving. I'll, I I know I can't do those things. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the whitewater rafting, though, is is really interesting to me because that's not only water, which mm-hmm. you were afraid of, but um, vertical drop. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how how easily was that? I mean, how quickly did you take to it? How did you? Was it was it a really long process? Did you overthink it? Did you or did you just say, you know what, let me just do this and try it out? It was more that I was in a boat with a bunch of, you know, extremely talented water women who, you know, were at the top of the sport. Yeah. And I trusted them. Yeah. And they said, You can do this, you just sit in the boat. My instructions were don't fall out, you know, and pull as hard as you can on the paddle. Right. I'm like, all right. I can do that. <laughs> and so I actually researched like um researched like the types of shorts and what would be the grippiest, you know, you know, on the rubber tubes of the boat and how to shove my feet under there the best. And so I like looked up that kind of stuff and figured out, okay, how do I keep myself in the boat and just pull as hard as I possibly can? And you know, they're guiding the boat. I'm just in the middle. I'm just like the grunt in the, you know, middle left or right of the boat and Right. And I trusted them so much that, yeah, I would fling myself down class five in a boat with them. Wow. And and it was... And, it was and it, awesome. And it, it was awesome. It was and terrifying it was, and, it was even, and awesome. And even more awesome because you survived it. Yeah. And not only did you survive it, you won a national championship, right? Yeah. Which yeah. I had no idea that existed. Uh, you know, yeah, people don't know raft racing was a really big thing for a while. And it's, and when it's, was that, by the way? The raft racing was um, like early 2000, around okay. there. Okay. Yeah. And it was so amazing. I mean, we went to Chile and the Food of the Food River and wow. all these places. And yeah, that I was really kind of seeing some amazing parts of the world with a really great group of women, again, back in a tribe and people that I could hang out with and people that I trusted. And, and then a win and, you know, an achievement like that that's shared with five other people that you collectively earn together. That's even more powerful than something that you, you do yourself. Interesting. For someone who does like solo endurance <laughs> races. But uh, why didn't you stick with any of these one sports? Why wasn't it like, you know, I don't know, running or whitewater rafting or aerobics instructor? I mean, why, why wasn't it? Why, why did you switch? Yeah, I mean, because the typical trajectory of people we talked to on this podcast yeah. and just athletes in general is you find something you're good at at a young age. Yeah. And then you, you push through it and you persevere and you recognize there's other people around that are as good as you. And then you use that as motivation to get to the next level. And then, but you're sticking with one sport and you're getting all the yeah. way through it. But you hopscotch. I'm not. Yeah, it's true. Jack of all trades, Jill of all trades. Jill of all trades, master, master of, of none. Some. Master of some <laughs> if you're working really hard at it and focus on that, like, like mountain biking. But, but why do you think that is? Is that just because you have this relentless curiosity for trying your, you know, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, yeah. but trying your, this, this idea of like uh, pushing your threshold in, in different areas or, or different variations of the same kind of endurance mantra or endurance Yeah, motivation? I think curiosity is a big part of what I do. And, you know, when someone comes along and says, oh, do you, do you want to try rock climbing? You know, the answer is usually yes. And, or do you want to join our, you know, international rafting team? Like, well, what's that? And the answer is almost always yes. So I try to say yes instead of no. And I get invited on stuff. And a lot of those things, uh, the, the, the outrigger team, when I lived in California, it was the same. They're like, well, do you want, you should join this outrigger team. You're, you have, you know, you're strong from rock climbing. And so it's, I think a lot of people, if they said yes instead of no, my, you know, maybe you're not going to be a master at everything, but I, I also, 
I mean, I love variety. I get bored. It's like we were talking about running around the track and doing a two-mile race around the track. You run around eight, eight times, and, I mean, to me, that's just not any fun. And I didn't get bored with rock climbing. I didn't get, I didn't get bored with whitewater rafting. It's just um, the situation changed. And adventure racing, for example, is another good example. Explain, I, by the way, I think yeah. you need to explain adventure, adventure racing. racing yeah. Because it so, sounds absolutely insane. It's amazing. And I, I, that was a great 10 years of my life. So Mark Burnett, who has Survivor now, his first reality TV show, the first reality TV show ever was a, a, a show called Eco Challenge. Um, and it was... It's adventure racing. It was a format where you you race in teams of four. They have to be co-ed, so I was usually the only woman. And they're, you know, a thousand mile long races uh, in Africa or wherever. Um, All these exotic places. And they're multi-sport. So it's, you know, you have point A, get from point A to point B, and you've got checkpoints along the way. So you're navigating map and compass. You can choose your route as long as you hit the checkpoints. And then each section is, it might be a camel riding section or a hiking section or a whitewater section or a biking section or a climbing section. And so you're doing all these different sports in the team of four. You have to stay together. And you're strategizing and thinking, and the clock never stops. So you, if you want to sleep, you sleep. You stop on the trail. You find, you know, a shack to go into. But um, you run the risk of someone else passing you or another yeah, team passing you. Don't, you. And you don't know. Or if you choose a different navigational path, you know, this may be longer but easier. Or you go up and over the mountain. And so the race is going on, and you don't know where anybody is, really. You're just sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's not like you can look behind you like in a running race and see how close somebody is. So they were, I mean, it's expedition racing. It was, you know, using your brains and strategy. And obviously you had to be skilled in all those sports. And cycling was um, only reason I, you know, got back into biking was because it was one of the legs of the sports and I had to do it. Um, But I hated it. I I was so bad at it. I hated it. All the cycling sections were just like, oh this so much just let me get off my bike yeah but we did really well as a team and you know I was the captain of our team the only woman um you know so I'm racing with guys all the time and getting essentially a PhD in team dynamics and how to work together and get the best out of everybody when you're tired and you're hungry and you're lost and you know you're totally deprived of all the comforts and how do you do that carefully you choose your teammates very carefully and you really get to know them and you get to know every trigger point or every somebody gets quiet for a few minutes you know they're hungry or somebody starts to get bitchy and you know you know this is happening and so you start to look for very small cues in yourself um, and also in other people and it's been a great lesson in just how to work with people and also speaking up when you're hurting asking for help and being able to give and receive help on those teams. And, you know, that's hard for a big 200-pound strapping dude to ask me, can you carry my backpack? I'm too tired right now. And the answer is yes. And that happens. It was fascinating. And he did that for 10 years. And But then, you know, Mark Burnett went on to other TV shows and the sport kind of, it's still around, but it kind of faded. The big international races faded because they weren't televised anymore, which means sponsorship dries up. Right. You know, all these things happen. So, so that sport, you know. Were you personally done with it as well? I, I was because I'd witnessed a, a friend die in a race right in front of us with Rockfall. Um, and it, that was pretty devastating for me. Where so was that? That was um, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, you know, it was a U.S. race. Um, and, yeah, it was just kind of, I think it was bad course design, you know, putting a checkpoint up on top of this really loose, scrambly, you know, hill. It wasn't a rope section. It was just a really kind of gnarly hiking section. and With loose rock. With mm-hmm. loose rock all over the place and no other way down and, you know. They could have easily just put the checkpoint, you know, we still had to go that way. They could have just put the checkpoint in the saddle instead of on top of the peak. I mean, longer story, but it, it really took the wind out of my sails as far as, you know, why am I doing this? Um, I'm definitely not involved with sports to die, even though people might look at the sports I do and think that they're really high risk, but they're not. They're For me, they're calculated and I'm right. controlling most of the elements. And I felt really betrayed by, you know, what happened in that race is, you know, he died during the race. Um, they halted the race for a while and then everybody just started back up again. And there was a hundred thousand dollars prize money, which 
was a really big deal in that event. And everybody just kind of went on and was like, are you kidding me? You know, that all that money, like who can take that prize money that needs to go to Nigel's family or that, you know, like, what are we doing here? And so I was really went home and just kind of really for the first time evaluated, like, what am I doing with all these sports and what, why am I, why am I risking this or you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? And so it was really kind of a soul searching time for me. And how old were you? I was thirties. Well, yeah. Thirties, um, early thirties. And yeah, I wondering, okay, now, now it is time to get a real job and stop fucking around. And what do you think a real job was back then? <laughs> I mean, to me, it was like, okay, how can I use my degree? And I kind of started uh, going down the path of a real job when I, you know, I got out of college. I, I got a job at a health club in Chicago because I wanted to, if I could partner marketing with sports, those were the things I liked. Okay, that's going to be good. So I went and got this job at a posh health club in Chicago and um, they had a big rock climbing wall and, this was nine, early 90s when rock climbing walls weren't a big thing. It was one of the first ones in the country. And that's where I learned to climb, and that's really where I found outdoor sports. And that kind of shot me out west. And um, But, yeah, all along it's like, okay, if I have to get a job, I'll get a job in sort of some sort of sports marketing or something like that. Um, meanwhile, I'd also joined the fire department in Ketchum part-time and sort of had that as a backup plan of, okay, I could go to paramedic school, um, and, you know, get a job as full-time firefighter and, and do that. So to me, that's what a real job looked like was either a real, real job would be sports marketing um, and kind of a medium real job, <laughs> uh, like a regularly paying job would be um, paramedic school, fire department. So that so also allows plans. you, it allows you the freedom to do. Totally. I mean, had that you, ended up being, would have been a great career for me, but. Had you decided on, on a place to live? I mean, was you, yeah, I was you in mentioned Ketchum, Ketchum at the time. Idaho. Yeah. Okay. So I had uh-huh. lived there. I was living there. I liked it there. I was on the fire department there. Where so, Hemingway killed himself. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, you yeah. know some Idaho history. I know that Idaho <laughs> history and something about and he potatoes. Wrote For whom the bell tolls, you wrote that there. He did. Yeah, and uh, there's that there's was some cool that was actually my first real piece of I guess literature that I read when I was young, and that blew my mind. You need to come do a Idaho Hemingway tour. There's his house is there right. um, still, and yeah. they do uh, uh, you know writers. Um, they host writers there to sort of live and write and how create. much of the swashbuckling kind of personality <laughs> of that dude is channeled in that city or in that town there is that is that does do you think Ketchum tends to attract those kinds of folks I think so and you know you read his books and you you, you know it's really cool to read of like him fishing the places that he fished and yeah, the, the mountains yeah. that he hiked in because that's all still relatively unspoiled I mean the terrain there is it can't sprawl because of the mountains. You know, there can only be so many houses in that valley. And so it does really feel like a step back in time. And when people come to Ketchum and they, they're they kind of blown away that, yeah. you know, there's no cell coverage in a lot of the places. And it, it really is, you know, a private Idaho sort of a place. And it does feel like it, not that it hasn't progressed, but it hasn't um, It hasn't been spoiled. It's right. really special there. And you recognize that when you move there. Probably, yeah, right? I yeah. you know I lived out of my car. I lived all over the place. And this was is the like, Acura Integra I read about in your book. No, it was the Bronco. <laughs> oh, the Bro- Be- Betty, yeah. right? Betty the Bronco. I saw a Bronco on the running this morning, Santa Monica, and I stopped and took a picture and had a little like moment. Little I really moment. miss my truck. Yeah. So your truck was, by the way, we should we should mention this because it is impressive. You had to completely rebuild your truck, right? I did. It was kind of a rusting husk of a. Beast it was you... a rite of passage for me. Yeah, right. I wanted a truck. I was like, my new lifestyle. Like, I'm a rock climber now. You know, I'm gonna, I'm rock climbing. <laughs> and I was part owner yeah. of a rock climbing gym, so I did kind of have a real job for a while. I was managing and running rock climbing gyms in California. Huh. Um, the one right around the corner from here, I opened up. It's still there. I call Rock Creation. Nice. I'm really proud of that. Nice. Um, but so yeah, I, I'm like, I need a truck, and uh, but I, I don't have any money. I can't afford a nice truck, and so. I kind of went looking at old trucks. I've always had a passion for old cars and old trucks and uh, really liked the Broncos and had a friend, a uh, boyfriend at the time, who was very handy mechanic, and he helped me find one. Um, but, yeah, it hadn't been running for 10 years. Um, got a screaming deal on it and then spent a year rebuilding the engine, dropping the transmission, welding a bumper. Are you a tinker? You know. 
I mean, do you like diving deep into projects like that? Or is it kind of like... It was really like? rewarding. I'd never done anything like that. I never even knew how to change my oil. You know, I had Acura Integra before yeah, that. And I didn't yeah. know how to change the oil Which or was change the tire. a badass car in the 90s, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it was, you should it was say. pretty awesome. <laughs> it's, it's like a little bit of the butt of a joke. But I, when I was growing up, it was like, yeah, you could have the Toyota. You could have the Honda Accord or the Prelude. But the real badass car was the Acura Integra. It was, I liked that car a lot, but I didn't know anything about it. But the truck, yeah, I had to yeah. buy a set of tools, you know, get my own, like, craftsman tools. I still have the same toolbox. Um, and there was this massive reward lear of learning. And, yeah. like, it's part of what I like about the fire department, too, of, like, being an engineer and figuring out a fire engine. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm really adept at that kind of stuff, but, like trying to learn it and figuring it out is is a cool process yeah and then yeah being able to turn the key i still remember that feeling of working on the bronco for a year and then turning the key and just like oh my god it started yeah. <laughs> it started well for you it seems to be like you, you throw yourself into stuff because you like the process right you like the planning you like the plotting you like moving logically through and then you're rewarded at the end you mm -hmm. know the key turns the engine starts and it works or you finish in first place or you finish in the case of some of these adventure races. Um, is that, you know, has there, have there been moments in your life and your career where you haven't gotten the reward at the end? It feels like it sometimes. It feels a lot of times being a professional athlete, you know, every year renegotiating contracts and you could win world champion. You could do everything you're asked to for your job and not have a job the next year. And so there definitely feels like you know, for 25 years being a pro athlete, that's like the endurance game. That's the long game of, right, right. of making it work, every, having to renegotiate every year. I mean, imagine you go to work, you do a really great job, but every year you have to justify your existence and evolve and change. And it actually is good because it's pushed me every year to be like, well, no, I'm good. This is And this is why I'm good, and this is what I'm going to do. It's forced me to, like, set goals look back, be like, all right, here's what I've done. Here's what I'm doing. Um, but there is a feeling sometimes that like, is, am I just running on this hamster, hamster wheel? Like, right. what does it all mean? Like, okay, I got signed for another year. Well, okay. Now I have to win a bunch more races. And right. sometimes it, it does feel like maybe there isn't a payoff for all that work. You know, there's not the like tenure that you would get at a university or, you know, but there is always a payoff if you look hard enough for it. Sometimes it just doesn't appear in the way of a trophy or a renewed contract or something that is measurable. It could be something you learned. Absolutely. I mean, I think the where my career is evolving now, and especially with this ride down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and Blood Road, is I'm starting to see and understand um, the different kinds of trophies and the different kinds of journeys that, you know, all these wins and podiums and all this hard work have been leading me to for a long time and i just didn't know it i really want to get to that uh i want to get to blood road but um i feel like we have to one more stop before we mm -hmm. go and that's uh, with your decision at the age of 38 to become a professional mountain bike rider <laughs> because it's because you've achieved so much in in a short amount of time really in this sport that is incredibly grueling that you routinely saw as your weak point. So when someone suggested to you that you do a 24 hour bike race, what about that even attracted you in, in the, in the very, you know, in, in it's, in it's at the core of it, you know, because it's such a, such a, you know, it's literally taking the thing you like the least and saying like, do this for like 24 hours. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, and it's it's kind of insane. And I, w I will say I, I didn't expect to, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes to launch this, you know, the most successful part of my career has been cycling uh, as far as sports career. And, um, you know, I mentioned Nigel's death in that adventure race that I witnessed. And this was that that um, winter and, you know, sponsorship. had We lost our main sponsor. Nigel had died. I was really bummed. We lost our main sponsor. And really what I had left was a two-year contract with Red Bull. And so it's, I found cycling, it's, it's kind of Red Bull's fault. And, or I, I owe them for that because I had a year left and I called him up and I said, look, this sport I've been doing for 10 years, like we're done, we're dried up. And, um, they just said, you know, well, we're not going to take the money back. So find something to do for the year. And, you know, typical Red Bull way there, 
they're they're not like anyone else I've worked with. Instead of telling me what to do, which most sponsors are like, you need to go this race, this this podium bonus. Red Bull says, well, what do you want to do? And they ask you instead of telling you. And so they just said, you know, we'll find something, you know. And we had a little discussion, like, we don't care what it is. Find something to do. So I, I knew I could go long. You know, I was used to doing seven to ten day races. So... I had endurance. I looked at ultra running and just thought, nah, I kind of burned out on running. I had a, I left it kind of, you know, bad experience. Um, and 24 hour mountain bike racing was, um, it was the longest thing I could find. That was basically that would, um, play on my endurance. And to me, 24 hours, I'm like, yeah, I suck at biking, but 24 hours is actually a really short amount of time for me to race. I know how to take care of myself. I can I can handle being at night, I, staying up at night, no big deal. So it was actually the distance was long enough that I thought I could do well. Um, and so I entered 24 hours of Moab with um, with a bunch of girlfriends that fall and uh, as a team race, not as a solo. And rode, um, and we ended up, you know, we were a bunch of amateurs, and we ended up winning... Um, winning the, you know, women's team race. And I ended up having the fastest lap times of even the pro women on the course. But given that I was running down all the technical sections. You were literally just, picking up your bike oh, yeah, and running. I'd jump off my bike, run as fast as I could, get back on, and then ride, hammer on the easy parts to make up for lost time. Did and, you feel like a fraud? No, because it was nighttime and nobody could see me. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't tell that I, and I, you know, but my lap times were fast. I'm like, okay, I might be a fraud, but you know, I was faster than you. And yeah, so yeah. I was like, all right, I know I can just keep going for a long time. So I entered a solo race. I met my husband, Greg, um, and he, he was doing 24 hour solo mountain bike racing. And he's like, you know what? You really should, you should think about doing a solo one. So I did a solo one. He's like, I'll crew for you. I'll help you. Um, and I won that race. I beat all the guys. I beat everybody. They were taking bets at the end of like, is, you know the guy or the girl gonna win and you know I ended up winning the race overall and the second race I did was national championships and won that and you know called up Red Bull and said okay I found something to do for the year yeah and my bike sponsors you know everybody was like all right cool go ahead and do that and I had a lot of success that first year and that was you know 10 years ago and many world championships later and Leadville wins and endurance records and it really did um, it, it was a phoenix from the ashes. Like, I found a new thing. And and I'm not technically very skilled at mountain biking, but the endurance part of it is what I could do. And so it's like, yeah, I took a weakness, but I elevated my strengths, which was the endurance and going long and all that stuff. And now what's, I mean, what was my most hated sport has become my biggest passion. And, and the reason for that, people keep asking why cycling, is because I can the access that you have on two wheels, how far it can go. And, you know, I can go so many places on a bike that you can't go on foot or kayaking or climbing. Like there's just access to the whole world. The wanderlust. Yeah. You can see so much more on a bike. Can you tell me a little bit about Leadville? Yeah. Cause that, that for me, I, I don't know the intricacies of the race. I just know it's in Colorado. It's a hundred miles. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the hairiest races. It's probably, it's one of the best known endurance mountain bike races and been going on, you know, it's storied, famous race. Um, Technically, it's not super hard, but uh, what's hard about that race is it starts at 10,000 feet. The lowest elevation is 10,000 feet. Right. And so extremely high elevation, um, a long history of that race. It's been going on for a, a long time. And the Leadville Trail Running, running race is one of the first ultra runs as well. So a lot of history there. Um, and yeah, it's sort of like this, you know, the ultimate endurance mountain bike. How does it test you in ways like it's, it's really the, a a physical test of trying to ride fast for a hundred miles above 10,000 feet, um, puts a really unique demand on your body being able, being able to do that with a ton of elevation change and climbing. So it is this massive fitness, um, test and, you know, I went and won it four times and that really put me on the map more than the 24 hour solo world championships was those Ladville wins is where people were like, Oh, okay. Who's this girl? It's kind of tour de France of, it is. Of, it's uh, yeah, endurance cycling. Totally. It's, okay. it's definitely the, the most known, most well attended endurance mountain bike race in the world. And, and yeah, tour de France is a good analogy because you come through the finish line and red carpet and like, 
a lot of endurance mountain bike races, it's like your mom might be there cheering and a few <laughs> right. other people. But right. Ladville, there's, you know, these crowds and wow. And that first year, I remember like riding through and, you know, this like little narrow, you know, line of people like line and you're riding through it. It's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, for someone who really does cool. endurance sports, that was like. Which is so solo, right? It's and very so, solo. And, and, and just so relying on yourself. And, yeah. And you don't quit by the way right You'd, i quit <laughs> once you quit once when in was that high school and i still bear the scars from it i quit a cross-country race one year it was the regional junior year regionals and uh we were you know had to qualify for state meet we we're a great team you know we were going to state and i was the top runner on the team i was just having a bad day and uh was behind you know i was used to being in the front and i wasn't and i stepped off the course for no good reason and uh really jeopardized our chances of going to state. And luckily, the, our slowest girl on the team had the race of her life, and we still qualified. But I just, I remember the embarrassment. I remember the feeling of my mom, my coach, my teammate, what's wrong, what's wrong? Asked me what's wrong. And I had no answer for them other than then I quit because I was down on myself because I was running slowly. And, you know, that sort of mental weakness left a pretty big scar. And so, yeah, I don't quit. Um, did you, how quickly did you rebound from that? Well, state was, uh, two weeks later and I had to, that was the first time, you know, I talked to my coach, I talked to the assistant coach and it was basically, you know, I suck. I'm terrible. I let everybody down and it, you know, and, and it was, it was the first time my coach, it was really great. He, he, the first time I'd heard of like using a mantra of a way to distract your mind in, of the devil on your shoulder telling you how much you, you suck and how terrible you are, basically replacing that with, with you know, some positive self-talk. And um, he told me, okay, you're going to run the state meet and all you're going to say in your head is I can, I will, I won't be denied. He told me those words. I was like, all right, this is stupid. But I just chanted that in my head the whole race. Huh. And um, it was, he explained that, you know, your brain only has so much space. And if you fill it with something positive, the negative voice can't come in. And so I ran that race just saying, I can, I will, I won't be denied. And I got all state. Um, we won the state championship. And Do you still use that strategy? Do you still use that sometimes? I definitely use the power of the mind and positive talk and thinking and, and talking to myself. And I still have the devil and the angel on the shoulder. And, yeah. you know, you still have mountain biking. Oh, you can't ride that or you yeah. suck or that person's better than you. And and yeah, this many it's, years later, I still need to use mantras. But it was the first time I realized how powerful your brain is more yeah. than your more than your physiology is that you have control up here in in your head. It, negative and positive again, right? Because mm -hmm. earlier in the discussion, you and I were talking about you know Will Gad and the power of negative thinking yeah. and motivating you. And, yeah. and and again, that's just that seems like it seems like for you to be successful at what you do, it's a constant battle between the two of those. Right. It's finding the balance between that. I am battling. On and, and I think that's why I, I like the really long stuff, because you get so tired that you stop having that battle. You're right, right. just like, go forward. This is eat, drink, read the map, take care of yourself. You you actually get fit, so fatigued that you stop talking to yourself and you're just your flow. You're you're just doing it. You're just feeling it. And you're that all the noise stops happening. It, it's uh, introspection, finally. Mm -hmm. um, you, to transition now, not awkwardly, let's just say it's not <laughs> a super smooth transition. Um, your father's remains were actually found in Vietnam, and sorry, in Laos, right? Mm -hmm. Laos, in 2003. Seven, 2007. 2007. Yep. So... Why did it take you this long to make that journey back? Well, 2003 is when I first went to Vietnam and was doing an adventure race there and, you know, in the jungle, getting trench foot, like survival, jungle survival. And it's the first time being in, in that place where I felt I felt a sense of him. You know, you right. asked me if I thought about my dad a lot growing up and I really didn't. Um, but when I was in Vietnam for that trip, I really thought about him while we were in the jungle and just thinking, man, is this what it was like? And I felt a curiosity. And so after the race, 
um, went to his Air Force Base, Da Nang Air Force Base, where he served, went and crawled through the tunnels where the Vietnamese lived, went to uh, a battlefield of Quezon, um, which was a really famous, bloody battle, and just did some war history stuff with my mom. And that was the first time I felt a desire to learn about him and learn about what happened and seeing those places in that, that history that's still there. It was just like, wow, I don't know anything about this. And our guide pointed out over the hills, he's like, that's Laos over there. You can see that that's the Ho Chi Minh trail. And it was this fleeting, I took a picture, um, of the hill and just, just thought, Oh, I want to go there someday. And that was 2003. They found his remains in 2007. And that's where it was like, that's the first time we knew, okay, he died in the crash. He wasn't a prisoner of war. He wasn't, you know, he doesn't have another family. He's not living in Vietnam. Um, he died in the crash. And Reassuring? Or? Yeah, to me it was a relief that he didn't suffer. He wasn't tortured. I mean, you hear these terrible stories about, you know, what what went on for the prisoners of war. And I read a lot of books about it. And um, But it really, I think it was the adventure racing over in Vietnam that opened up my curiosity again of wanting to know about the war, about him, about what he went through. And the idea took a while to marinate. And really, again, it was Red Bull. You know, they push us to to present ideas and expeditions and journeys. And so I presented the idea of, okay, well, I wonder if anyone's ridden the Ho Chi Minh Trail and can I combine what I want to do, endurance mountain biking and expedition riding and, you know, my desire to go see places and explore, can I combine that somehow into a Red Bull trip and, you know, and, and go look and spend time in the Ho Chi Minh Trail? And, yeah, I pitched the story. No one's ridden the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It's not like it's all mapped out and, you know, this yeah. way to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right, right. Um, and I put it together and I pitched the idea and it didn't stick for a while. Um, it got denied a couple times and I pitched it again. And I think, at, you know, one, I wasn't really ready. I was still, you know, full on racing, Leadville and those races and, you know, pretty hardcore. And to go take time out for a big bike expedition like this, I probably wasn't at the right point in my career. I'm kind of glad it didn't get accepted the first couple times. And I don't think Red Bull Media House was ready to tell that kind of story yet. A personal narrative? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're growing. Were you ready to tell that story? Were you ready for it? I didn't. I had no, no. I mean, if I had known, looking back now, what the trip became, I I really just, the adventure in me thought it was this amazing trip, bike trip to take. And yeah, I would learn about my dad and learn about the war. And I was really interested in war history, but I really didn't think it would be this deep dive into me as a person and I think if on the front end somebody had said well this is what this is going to be like I might have been like oh I don't know if I want to you know rip my soul open that much and present it out to really? the world. I mean you've got a you've got a book right yeah. Rebecca Rush to Glory Rush to Glory yeah which is cooler it could be a good name instead of Queen of Pain but yeah. Queen of Pain is still pretty badass <laughs> uh but uh you know you you lay a lot of things bare in that book as well yeah, that was the first time I did that. I mean, we're supposed to all be tough and hardcore and you're a pro athlete and, oh, you're tough, you're the queen of pain, you know. Yeah. You got everything handled. And, right. you know, when I wrote the book, I I didn't really hold anything back. I just put it out there and it, the reception, what it made me realize, one, it was cathartic for me to like, you know, it was very cathartic to one to look back and celebrate all the stuff I've done because we rarely do that. We're always looking, what's your next win? What's your, what are you doing next, right, next, next? Right. So it was cool. It was like looking back through old photo albums that we don't look through yeah. anymore either of yeah. like, wow, like that was pretty cool. Yeah. And recalling up old friends and going down memory lane, it was pretty awesome. And, but what I was really surprising from the book, and I thought, like, if nobody ever buys this book, that's fine. Like, for me, it was a cool process. Hardest thing I've done, though, way harder than any race, anything like that. Sure. Um, because there, it did feel like this process where there was no reward <laughs> um, <laughs> of sitting and writing a book. But now I look back, and the reward was for me, you know. The trip down memory lane, but what I'm finding is, is you know, 
the more I put myself out there, the more I get back. And so by opening myself up in the book, I got all these people being like, thank you for writing that. Yeah, I, you know, I had, you know, body issues earlier. Or I did this or I was, wasn't sure I could ride 100 miles or, you know, this or that. And people yeah. started coming back to me saying thank you or I gave this book to my daughter. And I just started realizing, like, what are we all hiding from? You know, Instagram or this or that. We all look so perfect, you know, on the outside, but really none of us are. And... I think it's important that we do tell stories. And I think that's what's the book made me realize that this blood road story needed to be told, not for me, not for my dad, but for a lot of other people who are still trying to heal. Did, when did you understand the magnitude of it, the gravity of it? There are some very poignant moments, you know, when you come across old wreckage of other planes, pilots that have been shot down, that sort of thing that are quite emotional. But um, did you go in, did you go in almost expecting that it would be kind of an emotional roller coaster in that like that? I expected to it to be an amazing expedition and a bike ride and exploration. I expected it to be more uh what I'm used to doing, you know, these ultra endurance events. I expected to be in control and I wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't like any race or ride I've ever done because I wasn't in control. One because there's a film crew with me, you know, I'm riding with a stranger who I'd never met, uh, uh, your partner, rider, rider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, we became sisters in the end, but there was so much that was out of my control and I don't like that. I, you know, I'm, I'm a control freak and I control what I can so that when on expeditions, you know, the shit hits the fan or things are unexpected, I at least know I've got my map. I know where I'm going. I've got my food. I, I can control this stuff. And, um, this trip was not like that and coming across, things like F4 fighter wing, you know, the plane that my dad flew and having history really like slap you in the face and a living history on that trail. I did not expect to see bomb craters and parts of planes. And I didn't expect 45 years later to see with my own eyes, that kind of history. I mean, we read that stuff in the books, we see the movies, you see those things, but they're not three-dimensional. And it was, it was, it was shocking. I, I like, I didn't expect, <laughs> I didn't expect to see those things. I didn't expect to feel that way. I didn't really know what I expected. Um, but I was in a safe place. I was with people that cared about me. I was, you know, with my husband and a crew, Jason, who's been my mechanic for 15 years and, QN, you know, even though we were strangers, she definitely had my back and was very sensitive to what was happening. I think they all knew it was going to be as emotional as it was before I did. I think it's a lot of people can see, th you can't see things when you're in it. And people will tell you, I mean, even my career, oh, you're a great athlete or this or that. It's like, no, 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 no. People can see, see things from the outside before you actually see them yourself. And I think that was happening. And now I can look back at the movie and it's, it's a dream. I mean, I was there, obviously, but to have it captured and packaged and, you know, visual to see is really amazing for me <laughs> to go back and look at it now. What did it teach you about not having control? <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest lessons that Huen gave me was teaching me to slow down and to stop and look and listen. I mean, for example, we'd ride past all these rice fields and rice paddies and, you know, whereas I'd be normally head down, you know, okay, if we put in, if we stay this average miles per hour, we'll cover this many miles a day and then we'll be there in this many days. You know, that's how my competitive brain is thinking. And, but instead she's chatting away with me, telling me how they harvest the rice and how in the season and how they do it. And, and so it causes me to you know, to be polite and listen to her and look up and be like, oh, wow, yeah, like every grain of rice that you eat is hand taken off there. And I mean, that's just one example of her showing me her world and making me um, come outside of myself instead of me being, okay, we can do this many miles. I'm going to my dad's crash site. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. It became a lot less about me and more about her and the culture and the crew and the Buddhist monks that we saw. And so, 
I think that's the the letting go of that control. And once I did let go of of trying to stay on a schedule and trying to get the film crew moving faster, and and once I got off of my mission, um, I was actually able to experience the place in such a more complete way. And it's, I mean, it's like I said about the book, realizing that the more that you do open yourself up, the more that you give, the more that you get back. And so by getting out of myself, out of my own way on this trip, by having to slow down, um, it was such a richer experience because of that. Rebecca, thanks a lot. That was great. <laughs> thanks. Uh, and uh, I'm still after that playlist, by the way. Oh, I got it. Okay. All right. There's definitely Let's Get Physical. Okay. Um, that was one of them. Who, I mean... Let's get physical, physical. 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 Yeah, you remember and it was, that one? Who doesn't? I mean, it, it was kind of the soundtrack of, of every aerobics class uh, I ever much, saw yeah. in every late yeah. '80s yeah, television yeah, series or something. Totally. Oh my god. All right, Classic. so we'll have to we'll have to think. Of, we'll put a pin in it, okay. as we say. Okay. In the media world. Okay. And uh, and thanks a lot for coming by. That was fun. Thanks. Great. All right. Yeah, thank good you. Good questions. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rebecca Rush. Uh, I really enjoyed that hour. I hope you guys did too. Uh, you can check us out at redbulletin.com backslash podcast. It's also the home of some beautiful words and images. Also, you can subscribe to the Red Bulletin, the magazine that lends the podcast its name. Find us on iTunes. If you find us on iTunes, leave a note saying how much you like us. Help other people find it. And, you know, I'll probably see you next time. <laughs>